You've tuned in to the Message to Kings podcast, where we tell the complete history. Welcome back to the Message to Kings podcast. This is your host, Brett Heaston, episode 17, The Exodus. Today we're going to look at one of the greatest events in human history. As we look at it, I want to take a different approach. Those familiar with the Exodus story know that God sends 10 plagues to judge Egypt and rescues the Hebrews and totally destroys an Egyptian army in the Red Sea. It's an absolutely amazing account that can almost be looked at as part of the birth of the Hebrew and later Israel nation. Because it is such a familiar story and is so foundational and there are so many movies made about it, I want to take a different approach. Remember one of the original episodes titled War in Heaven? The concept was spiritual warfare. And that is the way I want to look at this account of the Exodus from a spiritual warfare perspective. Using a business term, I'm going to approach this from 10,000 feet up. I'd like to relay more of the unseen realm if I can take this liberty. I don't want to dumb down the actions of Moses and others, but I want to focus on God's purpose and actions, looking at the story militarily and from a heavenly perspective if I can. There is something that is so amazing about the Bible. It is the inspired Word of God, and at the same time, it is extremely personal. For example, the last three episodes were really in the life of the persons of Job and Moses, but now the story gets global or national and very spiritual. I really enjoy military history. For this reason, I look forward to when we go over the judges and the wars of David and other kings when we get there. But as we look at the story of Moses and Pharaoh, we're going to view this story more strategically. God and the Hebrews were confronting Pharaoh and the Egyptians and their principalities. Moses would be God's ambassador, and he would be confronting Pharaoh, the devil's vassal or puppet king. Here's the military part in summary. God will strategically target specific targets and strongholds to take them down. Pharaoh won't do what God requests, so he has to target his strongholds and tear them down. After the great victories over these strongholds, the Hebrews will be paid back wages for their times of slavery, and they would loot the Egyptians. In one last battle, call it God's Cannae, God would completely destroy an enemy chariot force with no mercy. Stripped and looted and impoverished, the Egyptians would experience the complete judgment of God, leaving no stone unturned. All principalities will be in ruins, and the economy of the nation will be stripped. Their future leadership in the form of the next generation will be removed, which will be in stark contrast to the complete prosperity brought by Joseph hundreds of years before. Here's a little background on Pharaoh in general. Pharaoh is a picture of the devil or a type of antichrist. He is the ultimate picture of pride and arrogance in the face of God himself. In fact, he holds himself up to be a god. Pharaoh was the principal and religious leader of the Egyptian people, holding the titles Lord of the Two Lands and High Priest of Every Temple. As Lord of the Two Lands, the Pharaoh was the ruler of Upper and Lower Egypt. 
He owned all the land, made laws, collected taxes, and defended Egypt against foreigners. As high priest of every temple, the Pharaoh represented gods on earth. He performed rituals and built temples to honor the gods. The Egyptian people worshipped many gods and included the Pharaoh in their worship and considered him God on earth. The Egyptian people had many gods who served their ten basic needs, which God will target with the ten plagues. At the time, Pharaoh was the greatest ruler on the planet. He had upwards to three million Hebrew slaves, and he built monuments to himself and pyramids to his afterlife. He was the epitome of power and influence. He didn't rule the earth, but he was the most powerful ruler on it. Egypt had the most admired culture and prestige and power on the planet. And over this nation was one man named Pharaoh, who was considered a god by his people. Empowered by the Hebrews, he refused to let them go, despite signs and wonders and the worthlessness of their gods and his power. See, his pride was so great, Pharaoh was unable to change. His heart was in such a place he was unable to humble himself completely. Thus, he watched his nation collapse around him and collapse at will into the near oblivion of the Bronze Age collapse. Remember the disappearance of the Minoans in the Indus Valley civilization and soon the Mycenaean collapse? Egypt will recover, but we will not hear of them again until the time of Solomon, about 500 years later. Pride is defined as a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether it's cherished in the mind or is displayed in bearing or conduct. Pride is obviously the opposite of one of the primary characteristics of Jesus, humility. Think about George Washington from our previous episode in the example of humility. Pharaoh represents the opposite. All right, before we get into the account, here's a spiritual situation in Egypt. The devil is ruling the country of Egypt through Pharaoh, like he does in so many places through his representative who is knowing or unknowing. In this case, his representative was Pharaoh. The devil has built ten high places or principalities in Egypt. Ten high places supported by false worship. A rising of influence with each bowing knee, ten strong principalities were in place which required God's attention. It's not that the principalities were too powerful for God, but the principalities were too great an influence on the people and the powers and authority that they needed to be taken down. Unfortunately for Egypt, these principalities had control over every system of administration and government and business. And when the systems are taken down, the result is the destruction of these systems of agriculture, finance, government, and administration in Egypt. God will be leveling these ten spiritual towers, and as they fall, the natural phenomenon is the plagues. I like to think of it as ten Tomahawk cruise missiles targeting ten towers of Babel in the land of Egypt. Here's a different perspective. With each attack... Upon these principalities, the manifestation of the destruction of each tower brings about the nasty effects of the plagues. And the final battle is something that you see great military commanders all through history do and attempt to do. Strategically withdraw their forces into too tempting a target for the enemy to not attack, only for the enemy to walk into a complete ambush. 
Back at the burning bush, God said to Moses in Exodus 4.21, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. Moses approached Pharaoh and told him to let the people go. It actually starts with Moses asking Pharaoh to allow the Hebrews to go away to worship God alone. This request continues to be rejected or only conditionally answered until the confrontation becomes so severe the demand changes to let my people go. And at the first request to go away to worship God, Pharaoh mocked them and increased the force applied to the Hebrews and their enslavement. The Hebrews complained to Moses. In turn, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and performed a miracle, allowing the staff to turn into a snake. But in turn, the magicians in Pharaoh's court did the same thing, but Moses' snake swallowed theirs. The next morning, Moses and Aaron confronted Pharaoh on the Nile and with his staff turned the Nile to blood. Here again, the magicians mimicked the same miracle, but they didn't show they could reverse it. This first assignment targeted the god of the Nile, whose primary god was Osiris, one of the chief gods of Egypt. The corruption of the waters was a humiliation to the gods of the Nile. The next plague targeted Hecht, the Egyptian goddess which had the head and body of a frog. She was considered the wife of the creator. Pharaoh relented and asked for Moses to pray for him to be relieved of the frogs. Here's the nasty part. Moses prayed and the frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled in heaps and in the land was actually reeking of them. Stop here and imagine a million frogs in your town. Everywhere in everyone's business. Now imagine they all die instantly. Nasty. And they are piled in heaps. Next consider the smell. They were in the homes, the businesses, the countryside. Everywhere. It says Pharaoh changed his mind and he wouldn't give in to Moses and Aaron. Then Aaron stretched out his staff and struck the dust of the ground and the land of Egypt was covered in gnats. Here the magicians gave up their pursuit of miracle counterfeiting. The magicians even uttered this amazing phrase, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh wouldn't listen. Geb, which was the Egyptian god of the earth, should have prevented this catastrophe. The first three plagues impacted all of Egypt, but the next seven will only impact the Egyptians, exempting the land of Goshen, where the Hebrews lived. The fourth plague brought swarms that destroyed the land. An early interpretation stated flies, but other interpretations point to it being swarms of beetles. The Egyptians had a god with a beetle head, which is obvious when looking at archaeology, and it was actually a dung beetle, which was the god of Amun-Ra, the king of the gods according to the Egyptians. After this, Pharaoh agreed to let the people go. But after Moses prayed and the plague relented, Pharaoh reneged on his promise. Following this plague, there was a plague of livestock, where all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the Hebrew animals died. These plagues targeted Apis, the bull god, and cow-headed Hathor. Following this, a plague of boils occurred targeting Thoth, the ibis-headed god of intelligence and medical learning. Even the Egyptians in Pharaoh's court did not escape the plague of boils, which was a skin disorder on the skin. A plague of hail came next, which tore down the worship of Shu, the wind god of Egypt, as well as Nut, sky goddess, and Horus, hawk-headed sky god of Upper Egypt. 
Pharaoh's response was confession after the hail destroyed the flax and barley harvest, which was headed and in full bloom. A plague of locusts came next. This plague destroyed the worship of Nephri, their grain god, and Ermatet, goddess of childbearing and crops, and Anubis, the jackal-headed guardian of fields. The ninth plague was a plague of darkness. The darkness is interesting because it says the darkness could be felt. According to Josephus, the darkness spread itself over the Egyptians, whereby their sight being obstructed and their breathing hindered by the thickness of the air. They were under terror lest they be swallowed up by the thick cloud. This darkness, after three days and as many nights, was dissipated. Three gods were singled out. Ra, god of the sun. Horus, god of sunrise. Shu, god of light. This plague was really fascinating because the darkness could be felt. And it says no one could see each other for three days except there was light in Goshen where the Hebrews were. To think that there was light in Goshen but not in any other part of Egypt, this had to be a serious alteration to the state of presence of life in Egypt. After this plague, the days of slavery, though it wasn't not officially over, they were unofficially over at this point. I cannot imagine any slave guard taking his job very serious after seeing all of these plagues. Some scholars suggest these plagues occurred over an extended period of time, up to six months. The next plague is hard to call a plague. It's more of a catastrophe. The target was Pharaoh himself and the Egyptian nation for their idol worship, and it was judgment on the treatment of the Hebrews and the killing of their male children. At the time of this plague, God gave Moses very specific directions. He told them to initiate the first Passover meal. Here's some quick facts on Passover. Um, this specific Passover was a must. There was no option or death would come to the firstborn of every house. A lamb was to be the main course, and the blood of the lamb was to have been placed on the top of every doorpost to prevent the final plague from hitting their house. The typical Passover meal includes lamb as the main course with bitter herbs to remind the Israelites or the Hebrews at the time of their slavery. It would have vegetables dipped in salt to remind them of their lowly beginnings. The salt would also represent tears of slavery, and with a dip of nuts, apples, and cinnamon and wine, which represents the mortar of the construction of the brick works that they were doing in slavery. Bread without yeast would also be included, for they would be leaving in a hurry very soon after this plague. After this event, the Passover comes becomes one of the most celebrated of the seven Jewish feasts. It is no wonder that Jesus had to die on the Passover in 33 AD. On the exact day, it had to be so to fulfill the actual Passover, for Jesus came as the Passover lamb to keep sin and the devil and all destruction from invading our homes and lives, for destruction was no part in those who are covered in the blood of the lamb, which is Jesus Christ the perfect spotless lamb. The Passover is celebrated in few Christian homes and churches today, but is a standard celebration in active Jewish communities. Participating in a Passover celebration can be very rewarding for anyone when you consider all of the rich symbolism that points to Jesus Christ. At the same time, it is very sad and sobering as you look upon the Jews 
who are looking forward to their future Messiah, but failing to notice they are celebrating the one that has already come. At midnight, the plague hit Egypt, and there was not a single home in Egypt except the Hebrews that did not cry out. Moses was summoned in the middle of the night and told to leave Egypt. It says the Egyptians wanted them to leave lest we all die. It cannot be stressed enough the comments like, Not a single home did not have weeping. It must have been horrible in Egypt that night. This final plague defies any understanding. Really, nothing naturally can cause this kind of targeted destruction. It can be estimated that anywhere from 300 to 700,000 Egyptian firstborns died that night. It's hard to fathom this destruction. Pharaoh was done in by the death of his own son and a future generation lost in a moment. It's really a hard one to wrap your mind around, that kind of death in a single moment. It really can only be compared to some of the things in Revelation. We don't know how many Hebrews that Pharaoh killed when he ordered the boys to be killed, which would have provided some form of justice. But here is a different perspective to look at when thinking of the loss of this firstborn generation of Egyptian boys. If you subscribe to a theological position that children that die prior to their age of accountability, that they go directly to or later go to heaven, then God actually saved the firstborn of Egypt from eternal destruction, knowing that they would fall into false worship and evil indoctrination as they grew up. Who knows, the lost generation of Egyptians may be currently or may one day be residing in heaven. It may surprise us one day. It was Jesus who told the Pharisees, The queen of the south and the people of Nineveh will one day rise up to judge this generation. Most likely the queen of the south was the queen of Sheba who came to Solomon. And also the people of Nineveh most likely were those from Nineveh that repented at the preaching of Jonah. Before we advance to the climax, I want to address an interesting statement that occurs over and over in this story. It's a statement that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It states it over and over, and I used to wonder and still ponder this one. Did God break his law of free will with Pharaoh, or was there something else? So I want to discuss some of the possibilities. There's an interesting footnote in my uh, NIV application study Bible. It states that the Old Testament writers sometimes do not differentiate between God and the devil. So this always bothered me, but there's, there's so many ways to look at this. Was it really the devil who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Or was Pharaoh so far gone that his repentance was just shallow and fake? It does mirror the book of Revelation where everyone at some point actually acknowledges God, but immediately after the wonder, they turn away from God. But here's another perspective from the warfare viewpoint. God was taking down the ten principalities or demonic strongholds of Egypt. Pharaoh was just a puppet. Possibly God wasn't going to allow human rulers, shallow and partial, and event-oriented repentance to stop his judgment on the mountains of darkness. The demonic strongholds had to be removed. There's also a fascinating verse in Romans 9.17, 
which quotes a scripture about Pharaoh. I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. Paul goes on to speak about some people made for glorious purposes and others for ignoble purposes. Pharaoh obviously was made for this ignoble purpose. At this point, the people of Egypt show up to give the Hebrews riches to fulfill the prophecy from the time of Abraham and the burning bush, sending them away with gold and silver and clothing, which they would later be used to build both something hideous like the golden calf, yet glorious as the Ark of the Covenant. The Hebrews leave Egypt, but in a final climax, Pharaoh changes his mind and determines to destroy or recapture the Hebrews. God could have led the Hebrews out of Egypt along the main road to Canaan, where they began their route, but he then led them south against the Red Sea, which appears to be folly when Pharaoh determines to retrieve them. Pharaoh comes at the Hebrews with his advanced chariot force of 600 plus chariots and corners them against the sea. Instead of being trapped in a helpless state, God the strategist was purposely setting up his grand finale to the story. This was God's battlefield masterpiece, a strategic withdrawal looking kind of like a famous Parthian or Mongolian military strategy. The Egyptians approach. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and the horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. 
That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. It doesn't end here after God's wonders. It would be easy to stop here, but it's man's response, or maybe I should say a woman's response to God's power that comes next. Let me explain. Have you ever been to a church where they really praise God. I'd like to think of one of those experiences, a small one, like a very soulful African-American church where everyone dances and shouts, or or think bigger, a, a promise keeper's crusade, or a spontaneous worship at a conference, or maybe an outdoor crusade. Imagine this experience, big or small, and multiply it times 1,000. It had to be incredible. Three million people praising God in spontaneous worship to God following this event as the cloud of God hovers over everyone. It had to be absolutely incredible. I like to think of this event as one of the greatest worship experiences in all of history due to the numbers of the momentum in God's presence. It had to be angelic and incredible and outrageous. The voices rising up to heaven covering the land with the cries from the voices of authentic awestruck believers in God. What a perfect conclusion to one of the most pivotal events in all of human history. Everyone cried out and worshiped God. Millions of voices crying out for hours. I'm honestly not sure of anything like it in human history. Moses leads them all in praise. But it says, Miriam, Moses' sister in Exodus 15:20, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. All right, to conclude the matter, it was 600,000 women making music and crying out to God and dancing. 600,000 women dancing and worshiping and shouting. It must have been seen by all of creation and all the powers and principalities of the air, for it will be talked about for the next 3,500 years. What a spectacle God has made of the enemies of God. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, we just heard a recap of one of the most powerful moments of all of human history. It is amazing to see the revelation of God after centuries of near silence. It is so like God to store up his wonders and suddenly overwhelm us. God is notorious for being quiet for generations, but when he shows on the scene, it is wondrous. The longer the wait, the greater the answer. In this generation, within this six-month time period, God overthrew a demonic national power and blessed his people and came and dwelt among his people. God smashed all the powers of darkness in Egypt and set up the greatest revelation of all humanity, the Passover lamb. The final plague, the Passover, represents our salvation as Christians and redemption to God himself. It is only by the blood of Jesus that our sins can be forgiven. It is only by the blood of Jesus that we can walk with God personally. It is only the blood of Jesus that prevents darkness from controlling us and destroying us. It is the blood of Jesus that saves us. It is by the blood of Jesus that those who want freedom from darkness cry out to be delivered from sin. And by the blood of Jesus, we can ask to be a new creation. 
and it is by the baptism in God's Spirit, as the Hebrews pass through the waters, that we become baptized anew and become a new creation. All you have to do is to get on your knees and acknowledge God and ask Him to forgive you and to cover you in His blood and to make you a new creation. And like the Hebrews, our only response, our only authentic answer to God's wonders is thankfulness and worship. Worship is the only response to the wonders of God. Signs point to Him who created us all. Miracles reveal the one who has power over creation. And wonders can only make us wonder at the God of all creation, of you and me. Before I conclude this episode, I'd like to refer everyone to a great podcast titled History of the Christian Church. When I was setting up this podcast in March 2013, I stumbled upon Lance Ralston's podcast, and I found it very educational, historically minded, and very informative. Lance is a pastor in California, but he comes off as a normal guy like you and me. In fact, he comes off like a guy you'd like to have coffee with and discuss history. What I like about his podcast is that he covers detail that is hard to find without reading hundreds of pages of history. He delves into great detail in the early church fathers and delves into some theological debates with an ease of understanding that makes it easy to listen to. His chronological podcast has continued well into the Reformation, and he's still going strong. I look forward to hearing his podcast all the way through to the present day. So if you want to hear more about God and history, check out Lance Ralston's History of the Christian Church podcast. Stay tuned next week as we talk about the forging of the Hebrew nation and the identity shift from the Hebrews to the Israelites and the manifestations and experiences of the Hebrews as they experience their own wilderness season, a nation in the wilderness. We'll discuss what happens when a nation suffers from what we call today institutional syndrome. It gets all kinds of ugly. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to check out the Facebook page and leave a comment or question. Or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.